What you working on these days, Jay? Um, right now, still the same things I've been working on, just writing a short film and you know, doing some uh, acting on the side. Been auditioning. What about you? Oh, you're auditioning too? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't know you were auditioning. Uh, been doing more and more. I feel like it's still a little slow for me to get back into it right now just because yeah. of the pandemic and everything going on with that. But there's definitely work out there. Cool. What, what about you? What have you been up to? Doing my final polish on Intervention. I'll be pitching a little bit more about what the book is. So when we have the big release party and stuff, we'll be able to do it on the podcast with everybody else. Oh, I can't wait. Cool. That's awesome. What about you, Todd? What you working on? Well, you know, uh, I, I'm working on a tween drama um, that's kind of uh, an exciting little project. Uh, it's a series, and we'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you more once I know more. Yeah. Other than that, still working on my act, uh, still trying to, to book dates, that kind of thing. And uh, we'll just see. Cool. Very cool. All right, uh, let's jump into Story Bites. We're going to be talking about the hook, which is plot point number one, uh, if we refer to the diagram. Now, you know, let's go back to the story kinetics diagram. Again, this is the four acts, eight sequences long, um, and this is just a template. So in other words, it's kind of, uh, think of these things as modular. The sequences can be moved to whatever order you want to. The plot points can be moved around. You can throw out a plot point, add a plot point. Most stories you want to have some sort of uh, some essential plot points, some essential elements like the dramatic question. Um, uh, you need to introduce the character. You need some sort of impetus that initiates the whole story. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the hook, which is plot point number one usually, um, which is you know located at the very very beginning of the diagram under sequence one. Now things to remember when you're when you're writing your hook that your main first objective is to grab your audience. Um, so usually you want to, you, you want to grab them in such a way that's, that, uh, makes them want to read the next line, makes them want to stay, uh, connected to whatever the next scene is. Um, one of my favorite hooks of all time is that scene from the beginning of Lost, um, with the first, you've seen Lost, right, Jay? I haven't watched it, but I've seen the opening. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's iconic. Those first two seasons are two of my favorite seasons on television. It's great character development. It's fun mystery. It's good drama. Uh, but that opening scene, uh, a guy wakes up in the middle of a jungle wearing a suit. He's a little bit wounded and he's just disoriented. And it's that kind of moment of like, you know, he's wondering what's going to happen next. Um, so your hook, you want to grab your audience Get them to wonder what's going to happen next immediately. Start off, start off not, not literally running, but start off in a way that grabs us and says, okay, this story is going somewhere. It's real momentum. Uh, so your, your hook is your opening image, uh, and that opening image establishes tone. Um, and think of it kind of like an overture to your story. If your story is a symphony, your overture is kind of like what your themes are in miniature. So if it's a horror, then you want to present some sort of like, like the beginning of Get Out. There's that kind of rising tension. It totally feels like this is where the movie is going. Even though a lot of times your first act might be a light, happy, positive place, the contrast where it's going to go, that hook gives you an opportunity to give you a sense or tease where the world is going to go, where the story is going to go without giving too much away. Because um, a lot of times you want characters kind of in a naive position. So you don't have necessarily have to introduce your characters in the very opening scene. The hook gives you that opportunity. 
Um, and then again, the the hook is a great way to present the theme. Like uh, in Lost, once again, the very first image is a close up of an eye opening, and that's that right there is the theme. Every single story after that, they cue the transition from one character to the next with their eye opening, and you hear this like uh, airport, the airplane sound as it kind of comes in, and that's what reminds you of like this is what the this is how we go into their world is by throwing open their eyes. Um, so yeah, so when you're, when you're writing your hook, grab your audience's attention. It's your first objective. Open, you get your opening image, established tone, overture to the story, and it presents theme. Uh, so whenever you're writing your hooks at home, uh, remember this is, this is how you want to grab your audience. Look at, go back and read. Often I'll pick up a book and I'll read the very first sentence just to see if that first sentence grabs me. Um, that first sentence is the very, it's an art form unto itself. And that's, that's why I spend so much time. I will spend weeks rewriting the first page of anything I write. Um, and the hook is really what, what, what it's all about. Just getting, getting your audience's attention and pulling them in. Any other thoughts, comments? How hey, important you know, is the hook for, for you? For, for some reason, I, I, I always, I'm going back to Breaking Bad. Mm, I keep going yeah. back to Breaking Bad with the hook. Yeah, so, do you remember what kind of hook that was? That, I, wasn't he running around in his underpants? Wasn't that his yeah. the first hook? He, yeah, he was like he was out in the desert. I mean, so we got a lot of great juxtaposition there. It was like there's there's seemingly a, a dude. I mean, a normal dude, but he's got no pants on and he's running around in the mm-hmm. desert. So obviously we're gonna have an intellectual peak there, kind of going, what is going on? Yeah. But I, I mean, how how do you think that that kind of connected with the theme of Breaking Bad? Okay, that's a great question. So first of all, we have in Breaking Bad, we have in media res, which is when you start the story later on in the story, and it gives you a tease of this is where the story is going. Now, in media res, a lot of people hate it because they say you're cheating your first act. They're basically saying like, you don't have enough confidence or you haven't developed your first act in such a way that's going to compel your audience. So you have to cheat and say, don't worry, it's going to get interesting. So you start in media res. Now, the truth of it is, is if you have a good reason for a media res, there's no reason not to do it. Um, but if it's if it's to compensate for people's lack of interest later then that, you know, don't use a media res as an excuse to avoid character development or making your story dramatic from the very beginning. Um, but in in the case of Breaking Bad, you have a guy who is in his whitey tighties. He's in that green outfit. He looks like a math teacher. He looks like a Ned Flanders guy. He's holding a gun that is obviously not, he's not trained to use. He's panicked. He's driving a Winnebago. He's got a gas mask on and he is about to shoot himself. He records a suicide video. Says everything about him. Like this, this is about Ned Flanders who is completely out of his elements trying to deal with this siren and these these authorities that are coming for him says everything you want about breaking bad i want to see that episode of the simpsons i'll tell you that right now i got this diddly dang gun right here all right well let's let's jump on from the hook we got uh we got some questions from uh the ask hole okay the question for the week is what is a subplot and do i need one Todd, you want to cover that? Well, yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, I, uh, do I need a subplot? 
Well, first give us what, what is exactly a subplot? What's the difference between a subplot and a primary plot? Well, a primary plot uh, tells you basically the direction the story is. is go- it, it's, it's the main story. It's, uh, uh, it's the story that the author is meaning to tell. Uh, the subplot usually is some sort of a reflection of the main story. It usually highlights some kind of uh, element of the theme. It uh, it will uh, um, it also kind of it, it, it um, can uh, increase the size of the universe a little bit, so that you kind of understand the the rules of that universe even better. Um, the subplot usually comes in. And, usually in the second act but i mean you know there's no rule that says it ha- has to but uh yeah you're right yeah yeah so uh, just, just so we're completely clear with, with the audience watching at home um so there's the plot and the plot is determined by a character's objectives when a character wants something and they pursue it that's their plot right so a subplot is a separate objective than the primary plot or the dramatic question um that they're still pursuing and if you remove that subplot from the plot, it, it won't impede or advance their their moves any closer to their primary objective. But the subplot usually helps us, like you said, it, it, it sheds more light on their character. And often, sometimes, if it's a total digression, it tends to be used as a way to reveal a different dimension of the theme. So, for example, in, in Tootsie, uh, it's, uh, we got the story about uh, Michael Dorsey, who is uh, convinced he's, he's pretending to be a female actress and uh, lying to everybody to, uh, to keep the job, to get the job. Now, in the story, the plot is he wants to convince everyone that he is a female actress so that he can hold on to the part that he has because he wouldn't have gotten otherwise. That's the plot. Now, the subplot is introduced or the complication is when he sleeps with Sandy, his best friend. Now, he sleeps with Sandy to cover up the fact that he's trying to uh, trying to dress like a woman and, and fool everybody. Um, but what the uh, but the reason why it's a subplot is because you could remove that whole plot of him sleeping with Sandy and it still gets the story across. But what what the difference is, what the reason why you want to include that is it reveals Michael Dorsey's own misogyny. It, it reveals his own way of objectifying Sandy. And as soon as he starts to feel superior and like, you know, him, you know, dressing like a woman, acting like a woman, empathizing with a woman, like he starts to feel like, yes, men are horrible until he realizes, wait, I'm one of those too. I need to make the change. And that's what's so, that's why that subplot is so great because it, it reveals that extra dimension. Take it away. It's still a great story. It's still totally coherent. But adding it in adds an extra revelation. That's why it's it's it addresses the central theme and then expands on it a little bit. All right, so subplots uh, mm-hmm. they add a lot to the story. Do you need one? Do you need one? That's a really good mm-hmm. question. Uh, do you absolutely need a subplot, Jay? I don't think you absolutely need one, but I think there are many many cases where a subplot helps the story um, with pacing and gives it something to have moments in between your main plot yeah one piece of advice that i heard that i really like is a lot of writers tend to write like there are some writers that write very sparse they're very concise with the scenes and they have uh just lean texture and often that means that they haven't really filled out the theme they haven't really filled out the character 
subplots tend to be ways to reveal more about the character and to give us more of an insight into their world. It's it's another way of kind of doing it. But it, it, again, I agree. You don't need a subplot if the story does not call for it. And that's what it comes right. to. All of everything we talk about completely hinges on this one central question. Does the story need it? And if the story does not need it, chuck it aside. Trim the fat. Kill your darlings. <laughs> Which brings us to... Um, our vivisection. I have a question for you, Jay. Yes. Something I was thinking about. Do you like your computer? I do. But do you like like your computer? Uh, it depends what website I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a relationship do you have with your computer, Jay? I would say pretty good. Um, would we, you say it was intimate? Can it depends on the website I'm on? <laughs> How do you define intimacy with your computer? Uh, you know, the quality time that I spend with it. Uh, you know, whether I'm watching a movie or another kind of movie. <laughs> but uh, I think I know where you're getting at. Today we are reviewing the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix, Spike Jones. Uh, Jay, why don't you give us the recap on the movie? Yeah, yeah, so um, starting from the top, Her was released in 2013. Director Spike Jones, writer also Spike Jones, starring Joaquin Phoenix, Amy Adams, Scarlett Johansson. Well, I guess I should have probably said Scarlett Johansson first, which is a big part of the movie. Uh, the budget was about $23 million, and it's about uh, a personal letter writer in the not-so-distant future, and his name's Theodore Tomley, played by Joaquin Phoenix again, who falls in love with a, a brand new operating system AI, Scarlett Johansson's voice. And yeah, so I mean, that's that's like the basic bare bones of, of the movie. It's, it's a love story between uh, Theodore and an AI, and he it's post a divorce or post a breakup. He's going through a divorce currently. Cool. Very cool. And what kind of budget did it have? Uh, it was 23 million uh, when it opened. I think it made about like 250 thousand its opening weekend, but wow. all time it's 48 million. 48 million. 48 million. Wow, yeah, that's respectable. So yeah, I mean it got close to or more than double its budget. Yeah, which is good. Uh, presently, right now, it has an 8.0 on IMDb, 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. Spike Jones won Best Original Screenplay at the 2014 Oscars for mm -hmm. this movie. And it was also nominated for Best Picture, Score, Song, uh, Production Design. Let me ask you, yes. was, this, was this your first time watching it? No, no, I've, I've seen it at least two times before. Oh, okay. This time. Cool. Uh, I will say that I, I didn't like it as much as I always have. Really? Yeah. This, this time around? This time around. Not to say I didn't like it. I, I still loved the movie and yeah. still very much enjoyed watching it. But it, it didn't quite grab me this time around. Maybe it's just because I've seen it so many times. But mm. uh, What about you, Todd? How did you like it watching it this time around? Have you seen it before? I've, I've seen it maybe five or six times before. I really, really enjoyed it this time. Um, I think it was just because... I mean, I don't know... Um, I honestly don't know why I enjoyed it so much this time, but I really, really enjoyed it this time. All right. Well, let's dive into a little bit of deconstruction. Let's talk about the plot. Now, when we talk about the plot, again, we're always referring to the Store Kinetics template, um, which is modular. 
Um, now, again, the template is always kind of an average for stories. Um, all the great stories kind of use this as an approximation, or I use this as an approximation for story. And then what the great stuff tends to deviate from it. And usually what makes it great is how it deviates from uh, from the normal kind of average storytelling. Uh, so let's let's talk about the deconstruction. So with her, we've got this uh, line. It's a it's an hour uh, hour and fifty five minutes, almost two hours long. Um, now this line that we're covering on here, this is the emotional. We got the positive and negative charge, and what this is is we're gonna ideally with film with storytelling, we are engaged in the emotions, the information, data is only there to give us more information to to illuminate how we feel about something so when we're tracking the story when we're guessing what's going to be happening next we're tracking the emotions so this timeline is designed to like the the middle of the line kind of represents about even keel You're, we're very zen at the middle we're not happy we're not sad we're just present um and then when you rise above the line that's that's when you're kind of in the positive you're happy you're excited uh, and then you drop below, and that's when you get a little sad or uh, or devastated. Um, so uh, the first things we want to talk about is the the dramatic question for her. I always, we always start with uh, identifying the dramatic question, and then getting the climax. Uh, now again, the dramatic question is a yes or no question projected into the future. Will the character achieve X? Um, and then the climax is the answer to that dramatic question. So in her, what is, what is the moment where, uh, what's the plot of the story? The dramatic question is the plot. It's the external plot that we're addressing. What is it? Who are you asking? Uh, Todd, what's the plot? Man, this one was so subtle because, I mean, I, I felt like, um, well, again, I, I have a tendency to rely back on, on the structure that I learned in film school. And they um, the point of attack seemed to be the moment where um, uh, Ted, Theodore, um, was thinking this, her, Samantha, could be like an alternative choice as a, a relationship. He started feeling like, wait a minute, this might actually be able to fill that tiny little hole he talks about later on in the film. Good. Let me help you out there. We, we, we talked about what the story is about real quick in one sentence. What's the story? Oh, can I just say the dramatic question from my perspective? Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I think that for me, the dramatic question ended up being, can Theodore admit his faults and move on from his failed marriage? Interesting. That's what seems to be answered for me by the end of the movie. Okay. So the story is... Is about him trying to move on from that past relationship and also grow as a person, and, and that's admitting his faults. And okay. You're speaking know. about general, general kind of abstract emotions. Specifically, what is the conflict that he's facing? What is the objective he's trying to achieve in the story? It's all about the premise of the story. The dramatic question is the premise of the story. What's the story about? Well, will he sign the divorce papers? Not necessarily. We we uh, we address that. We actually wrap that up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. 
The story, the story here is about a man who falls in love with his operating system. Right. The dramatic question is, will he make a relationship with his operating system work? That's it. Will it, So, again, the dramatic question always comes down to, will a character achieve X? In this, what he wants to achieve, what he knows he wants to achieve, his conscious desire, is he wants to have a relationship that works. And specifically, have a relationship with his OS that works. I agree that he wants a relationship that works, and that's uh, a through line for the movie. But I don't know if I agree that that's the question that gets answered by the end of the movie. I don't know if that's the dramatic question because for me, he, he's really still stuck on his divorce mm -hmm. until a certain point in the movie. And even then, he doesn't really move on until the climax of the movie when he writes that letter to his that's his ex. Okay. That's, and, that's and, a fair point. That's interesting. You, you could argue that... Um, so then the premise of the movie isn't will a man work... Uh, have a relationship with his OS, will that work? Instead, it becomes, will a man learn to let go of his wife, which is more thematic than it is dramatic. Okay. Like, the dramatic question is the plot. The plot isn't, I need to figure out how to let go of my wife. He's not consciously trying to do that. He is actually consciously trying to carry on a relationship with his operating system. Every single scene, his conflict is about whether he is having a relationship with his OS or not, whether it's a good thing, whether it's healthy, whether it's right, can he get accepted? So the dramatic question comes down to, um, actually, let me show you this. Uh, will Theo make a relationship with his OS work? That's every single scene is about that conflict. Now, I agree, it's addressing those themes about his relationship with his wife, but it is by achieving the external conflict of carrying on a relationship with his OS that he works through the internal conflict, which right. which is where we get into theme and unconscious drives. But his conscious desire isn't, gee, I really need to learn to let go of my wife. That's not what he feels. He feels the exact opposite. In, in the yeah. movie, he does talk about uh, it being an issue for him that he doesn't know what he wants and he doesn't know how to express what he wants to people. And he, I think he talks about that relatively early on in the movie. And Specifically, what does he say? I, I couldn't quote it. He says, I feel like I uh, disappeared on her in the relationship. She felt like I disappeared on her in the relationship. Right. Right. Which means he's aware of her feedback of him. Mm -hmm. That's not actually, it is part of the issue, but it's not what he's consciously trying to resolve. What he's consciously trying to resolve is, I don't want to let go of my wife. Right. He's still in love with her. So he's trying to he's trying to figure that out, and then it's not until this relationship happens that he goes through these external conflicts, and the external conflicts are all about him developing a relationship with his OS. That's what the movie's about. Mm -hmm. Todd, what I think is is interesting about uh, the dramatic question is how layered it is into the story that we're even having this discussion. There's so many films where we can go, oh, well, the dramatic question was this, that, whatever. But because it was so nuanced and so um, subtle, because I'm, I'm still fighting it in my head. I'm kind of going, well, I mean, it really was about a guy who, was, who broke up with his wife and they're, and he's, he's just trying to move, or he's not even trying to move on. It's like he just 
like all of a sudden there's this new element in his life that he's kind of experimenting with. And so the dramatic question being, will he ever get over his wife? But at the same time, you're making a you're making a really strong point that every scene is about whether or not he's going to make it. So you could also make the argument is is he going to fall in love with Amy Adams character? Now that's also a different dramatic question, which is tied into it. Mm. The story is not about will a man fall in love with his old friend that he went to college with. That's not the dramatic question. And the story is not will a man learn to let go of his wife. That's not the plot. That's not the high concept premise. The premise is will a man carry on a loving relationship with an operating system? That's the premise. That's the concept for her. Everything else we're talking about is the emotional unconscious internal conflict that emerges him learning to let go of his wife is actually the theme of the story it's actually the 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 internal conflict it's the unconscious drive that he's going through that he doesn't want to let go of so first we need to identify the external conflict and in this case now in romance in love relationships and love stories the the unconscious drive tends to look like it's very much the external conflict but with really great stories like her it begins to evaluate um, the external conflict uh, driven by a very complex machine underneath. And what I love about this is it really does have a beautiful, powerful machine underneath that we're going to dive into. So I, I want to make the argument that, yes, this story is about a man trying to have a relationship with his operating system. That's the premise. So the question is, will he, will he maintain that? And the scene that introduces that dramatic question is their first date. When Theo and Sam go out and they go to the carnival and she says, basically she leads him around, close your eyes, they have the pizza, they have the conversation. That's the first moment in a romantic, like a typical romantic comedy. This is the moment where they're like, will they, won't they? And this is where they begin the relationship. Everything up till now has been operating system. Oh, therapist. Oh, friend. And then he opens up his heart. And then the very next scene and this happens right at about 30 minutes. Yeah. Right on the mark. It does. She tells them to get out of bed and then they're out. And then they're out and then they have their first date. So this is when we clearly jump into act two. So act two is that, that dramatic question. Will he maintain an operating system? So give me the answer to that. What, what is the climax? Does he successfully carry on a relationship with his operating system? No. Why? Uh, she leaves him. She leaves him. I mean, she she leaves altogether, though. Yeah, literally, like, vacates yeah. reality as we know it. Right. Okay. Um, I would argue that the climax, and this is why it's such a great movie, is that it has a very complex thing. You could argue that, yes, he did successfully carry on a relationship, um, but you can never say yes or no. You always have to say yes, but, or no, but with this story. Because up till this point, he did carry on a successful relationship. And then the heartbreak is actually part of the success of the relationship, which ties into the theme. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So I would argue that the climax actually is when she says, you need to let me go. Mm -hmm. And so that's the answer to the question. So the dramatic question, will he carry on that uh, relationship with his OS? Yes, but, or no, but. When she's, but it's going to end basically that's the other side of the butt um, 
So uh, once we have the, the two temp poles, the dramatic question, the climax identified, then we can jump to the impetus. Okay, and the impetus is like you were saying, the point of attack. Uh, it's it's where his world is thrown out of balance. It's, it's where his world changes, and he's presented with either the problem or the opportunity. So it's the problem, or sorry, the uh, the threat or the opportunity. Now it's the problem they have to solve throughout the entire story, which is this is a new operating system. It's going to change his life. Now in this case, it's it's an opportunity that becomes a problem or becomes a threat. Um, so what would you say the impetus is? When he when he gets the when he gets the OS when he installs it for the first time. There you go. Yeah. When they it's literally their meet cute. Yep. Absolutely. So when when he brings her home, boots her up, and that's right at fifteen minutes, which is like uh, that's completely typical. Usually, you want your impetus within the first fifteen minutes, the first sequence, and that's right on point. Uh, they establish the character. We establish the rules of the universe, and then his world is thrown out of balance by being introduced to Scarlett Johansson's voice in his own apartment. Um, so that brings us to the midpoint. We can start to course the the big uh, the the ups and downs of the whole story. What would you say the midpoint is? Uh, the midpoint is the divorce lunch. The divorce lunch. Mm -hmm. Why is that? No question. You're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, it's up to that point. It's one of the biggest things that he is weighing on his mind. Yeah. He talks about it many times. We've met with lawyers. We've seen past uh, uh, clips of lawyers coming in and stuff like that. And it really changes his relationship with uh, Samantha, yeah. too. Absolutely. So from this point on, also, well, we'll get to that in just a bit. But, um, but the biggest thing is he feels like he's solved his problem, which is I now feel good enough to let go of my wife. I now feel at peace about it because... I've replaced her. That's essentially what he's saying is emotionally he's replaced her. So he's getting the fulfillment that he's looking for in something else, which is, you know, and that's, that's the part of the lesson he needs to learn, which is he's still not done learning because he thinks he's accomplished his goal and it's about to get really hard because he needs to adopt a new value system, which is going to send us tumbling down to the low point. Now, in this story, this is where her gets really unconventional when it comes to story structure. In fact, he kind of invented a, a new structure. Oh, my headphones are going to go out. Adam, you got some headphones on now. Hey, look at you. Magic. Yeah, my, my power beads died, unfortunately. Okay. Um, where were we? Oh, okay. So the low point. This is where the story takes a really unconventional turn. And uh, Spike Jones ends up kind of reconstructing something. He breaks the rules in a really interesting way that really serves the story. Uh, where is the low point? What's the saddest point in the movie, emotionally? It, it was when they were after the surrogate. No. Yeah, I, I, I think I have uh, a little bit of trouble with this because after the surrogate yeah. was uh, a low was point, painful. but also after, right, right, it's definitely a, a, a lower point in the movie, but also the, the climax is, like, very emotionally low, like, yeah. that's her leaving, that's Just the saddest leaving. part of the movie, yeah, yeah. but it's also at the climax. Yep, it's also the climax. <laughs> that's what I think is so brilliant about this, is I think the climax is the low point. Mm -hmm. He blended the two together in a really powerful way. 
which is extremely unconventional and exactly what this story needed to do. This is a great example of breaking the structure in a way that really served the story. Before this, uh, the, the impetus, the hook, the impetus, the dramatic question, the midpoint, all pretty conventional, uh, especially for romantic stories. We're, we're connecting with these characters. It's the will they, won't they. But then it takes a really kind of melancholical turn. If, but it serves a really powerful revelation. And that's, that's what I want to get into. Mm-hmm. And it's the structure that reveals that. Um, so he kind of adapted these two other structures where uh, we haven't quite identified exactly where the different act breaks are. Um, dramatic question we know is, the, is always the end of act two. Well, not always. Usually is the end of act one. And we jump into act two with the dramatic question, with the posing of the dramatic question. Um, then he does something right after the, a little bit after the midpoint, which is, uh, I'm just calling it the open heart. From this moment on, it's not a necess- it's a positive thing for his growth, but it's an emotional thing that causes a lot of vulnerability. And it, it reveals a lot about his character. And this is when he has that conversation both with Amy Adams and with uh, Samantha. Um, which Amy Adams' character is also named Amy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Samantha, actually, the original actress that played was Sam was named Samantha, Samantha Morton. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, I guess he's not really... Uh, except Twombly. I think Twombly, you know, as in Cy Twombly, I think that was a reference to kind of just the color theory that's, you know, just splattered throughout the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Cy Twombly's a, a modern artist that's beautiful, beautiful concepts, beautiful designs. Uh, and this whole movie feels like a Cy Twombly kind of uh, innocent, naive kind of pastiche of colors and playing with flat and dimensions. It's beautiful. Um, but in the open heart scene, he has he has this conversation with where Amy Adams basically says, like, life's short. You know, who cares if anybody else is going to validate it? Like, just just be open. And that's when he's like, yeah, you know what? It's weird that I love my operating system, but you know what? I'm going to go for it. So that begins a new act because it's a completely new strategy to the same objective. And again, an act break is simply an introduction of a new strategy. Each time you have a character with a new strategy, you're introducing a new act. And it feels like a new episode. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like, you know what? I'm going on vacation. You know, and that's when you know, we meet uh, Alan Watts and everything. <laughs> um, and then we have this other freaking Alan Watts. Uh, then we have this other uh, plot point at the very end, kind of the reconciliation, which is where he writes his letter to Catherine. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of that final beautiful button that reveals his kind of full uh, character arc, his maturity that he needed to go through. Um, oh, and then what's the hook? What's the beginning? Uh, the, the hook is literally him starting uh, speaking a letter into existence yeah. and we think it's from his perspective but we quickly realize that he's writing it from someone else's perspective Good. and throws Excellent. us into the whole world yeah and the thing I love about that is that really touches on the theme again we were talking about how hooks are a kind of overture um, it's it's the opening image which is a close up it's very kind of it's showing how his world is kind of shrunk down to the size of his own self it's a very solipsistic view of him and his job is to be an intermediary between two other people having a conversation. He is essentially what Samantha is going to be. He's essentially a, a working intelligence that works as a mediator between two other people trying to communicate their love to each other, which is interesting, you know, and then adds on the extra dimension that this is a guy 
who is unable to express his deepest emotions unless it's the strangers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's part of the beautiful irony of it. So that hook is that that great the what is it the lonely oh my god my contacts ah uh, the lonely love letter writer uh-huh. <laughs> it's like it's the perfect irony so um so these major landmarks the hook the impetus dramatic question the midpoint and then I'm calling it the open heart the low point and then this reconciliation kind of gives us the major landmarks that kind of stake out the whole emotional journey and then we can kind of fill it out with all these other plot points so we've got Act one, starting at the hook, ending at uh, the dramatic question, about uh, 30 minutes into it. Act two is from the dramatic question to the midpoint, where he signs that uh, that paperwork. And then from uh, the midpoint, we have that whole sequence about the surrogate, about her opening up the relationship or introducing something. And then act four is the open heart. Okay, and that's, so it still has a four-act structure. It's just a very unconventional. That act three to four is a, is a shorter uh, sequence, but has its own complete strategy, which is why it works as an act. It's not just a sequence, it's also an act. Because it culminates at a very important epiphany for the character. Um, and then from there, we can see all of these little characters, or uh, all these little scenes, following this kind of journey. And, you know, we'll notice that the first act is him kind of at a low point. He meets Sam, and things start to look up. And then he starts to open up again about it, or start to learn about his life with his ex. Everything starts to kind of go down. Um, and then he start, He has the first date, and that, that second act is all, everything's peaches and roses. Everything's going well. Until he finally feels enough strength and feels enough like enjoyment to say, you know what, I'm ready, I'm going to sign the divorce papers. I'm finally there. And then everything starts to spiral down as soon as she casts judgment on him. As soon as she said, well, he's in love with his laptop. It's like <laughs> such a great, like, uh, she just nails him exactly where it's going to hurt, which is so great. And it says a lot about the relationship as well. Um, so we, from the midpoint, we just go a slow descent. And then what's interesting is um, after the surrogate, everything feels wrong to him. Something doesn't feel right because he's trying to hold on. And mostly you can see what he's uncomfortable with is I'm so concerned about what my ex is going to think of me doing this. I'm going to feel like a fool. If I were to tell her this, she's just going to berate me. I'm going to feel like an idiot. And that's when, you know, both uh, Sam's character and Amy's character are like, who cares? You're still caring about her. You haven't let go. You've let go of her, but you haven't let go. And that's that's when he's like, I'm going to go with an open heart. And then just gets crushed. By Alan Watts, <laughs> by her elimination. Um, so that's that's the overall structure. The physicist man can't trust him. Um, so from there we got the structure. Let's talk a little bit about the character. Now this is kind of my approach for uh, for deconstructing character. I always start with the conscious desire. Now the conscious desire is the same as the dramatic question. It's it's the through line, the external objective. It's what the character knows he wants, right? So what is the conscious desire for Theodore Twombly? He wants to date his operating system. Yep. He wants to have a relationship with his OS. Exactly. Very simple, straightforward. What's his unconscious drive? He wants to get over his his past failed marriage. I, I think there's kind of now often the unconscious drive. It's an expression of uh, sacred values, like what is sacred to you and what's profane to you. Um, that's what informs why you want to do the your external drive. Now I think he has. 
this machinery going on beneath all of it where you can see every single time, every single scene is an expression of this unconscious drive. I think he wants to prove something. I think deep down what he's trying to prove, or he wants to prove to his ex, to Catherine, that he can be an emotionally available partner. Deep down, he felt so invalidated that now he's saying, I can do this. So every single scene, he's trying to say, see, I'm a great partner. Sam validates me. I'm really good. And every time he steps away from that, like uh, every time he fails at expressing how he's a good supportive care, uh, partner, uh, he feels this emotional drop. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is this unconscious drive driving all of it. So he wants to prove something to Catherine because he feels so invalidated. And I think a lot of that is at the core of this, which is the Achilles heel or the lesson he needs to learn. This is that weakness that he's, that he's struggling with, uh, which is that he withdraws from intimacy when his weaknesses are exposed. Now, I was thinking a lot about this because there's this moment where uh, they're saying, would you like a, a woman or a male voice? And he just chooses woman, right? Or a female voice. And then uh, they said, uh, and then the next question is, what's your mother like? And then it's that great joke where he's like, oh, I just feel like every time I share something with her, it's all about her. It's never about me, right? And then he cuts him off. But what that says is, so something we learn a lot about, like in psychology, we, we know that like um, narcissist parents uh, tend to raise children who are overly concerned because the way the children survive is by expressing, by prioritizing the needs of the parent. So, and you can totally see that in his, in Theodore's character. He's so concerned with validating the other person. So the way he survived was by ultimately hiding himself from his mother and making sure that she always felt validated. And which, which is a really interesting psychological dynamic. Now, if you put that person in a genuinely intimate relationship, all of a sudden he's going to have to confront everything he's been hiding from himself. He keeps convincing himself, I'm a good person because this, I'm a good person because this, I'm a good person because I validate the other person. But as soon as that other person says, wait a minute, well, you're doing this and you're doing this, he suddenly freezes and he's like, wait, it's not about me. It's never about me. As soon as it's about him, he feels exposed. He feels, all, and all he does is just withdraw mm-hmm. and he closes in, which is something I think is so clever about the script is he, they totally nailed that, that psychological mechanism of uh, children who are raised by narcissists tend to feel very, very afraid of being exposed emotionally because they feel like once they are, it's going to be used against them and it's being, going to become kind of a condemnation. Uh, so their, their defense mechanisms go crazy. So you have this woman, Catherine, who's genuinely in love with him. He genuinely loves her and they, they start seeking real intimacy. And as soon as they seek real intimacy, he immediately feels like, oh my God, I don't know how to handle actual intimacy. Because actual intimacy means they're going to see all my faults. I'm not going to be this perfect person because they're going to see all the faults up close, which scares the shit out of him. And I think that's at the core of why he shut down. Mm-hmm. Now, Samantha is that plus she's also the amount of empathy and compassion that he never had before. Catherine, we didn't get a strong sense of empathy and compassion. Uh, his mother, we just from those few little lines and his behavior, we're like, he's not getting a lot of empathy and compassion. But with Samantha, all of a sudden he's like, she can see everything and she still likes me. 
I've never had that happen before, which is beautiful and heartbreaking at the same time. And that's what I think is at the core of this, this moral imperative, which is, you know, if you want to survive in this world, if you want this, you have to learn to accept this. That's why it's an imperative, which is uh, we only have true intimacy through risking exposure. And that's at the core of that's what he keeps resisting. He doesn't want to expose his inner emotions as much because that's where uh, anytime he did that around his mother, he felt abused or stripped away or belittled or or invisible. Maybe that that was his way of being present was through validating other people around him, which is what he does in every single scene. Um, so and then ultimately, the big theme that we take away from this is at the very end, he learns the lesson that love is not meant to last, but to help us grow. And it's that last letter that really reveals that he's not he's not here to make to be in love with his OS forever even though that's what he might feel like he wants. Ultimately, this story is about love being a medium for growth, not something that is intended to be a, a constant state forever. What do you guys think of that? Am I off? Did I go down the rabbit hole? Well, what I think, what I really like about it is when I look at the peripheral characters, for instance, the Chris Pratt character, where he's yeah. always just kind of just unconditionally accepting of everything he says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Without hesitation. And he's just like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, she's an OS. Bring her along. You know, he, yeah. it did, yeah, he it did, wasn't even wasn't a phase. He's like, I don't care. Yeah. But then you look at the Amy character, her always, who always kind of accepted him as well. Like she, he's like, well, I'm dating an OS. She's like, well, I'm, have a relationship with an OS and she means a lot to me. You know, it's like, why don't you, why, you know, she's not. So he's experiencing that on other parts of, in other parts of his life that I think they're not as pronounced because they're not love relationships. He's not looking for validation from them as much. And so it's not like really a thing. I love the line where uh, Chris says, um, Thanks. He, uh, he says it's a nice shirt, and Chris says thanks. It reminded me of somebody suave, and then he turns to him and says, "Now it reminds me of somebody suave." And it's just yeah, like, ah, so what sweet. a sweet relationship yeah, I love that is. Yeah, yeah, I'm I like, I want to hang guys. out with those dudes, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then she was, cool. she was just at the end when she was just expressing, like, I just want to experience joy in some way. You know, and, and even the her husband who left her, who also is, I mean, he's definitely looking for something greater than what he's had. I mean, he's doing the whole vow of silence, and they show a picture of him among some saffron-robed monks. I know, that was so great. Because <laughs> you also still saw like, that Ooh. kind of pretension kind of peeking through. You're like, yeah. Oh. He's, yeah, you he's totally not doing can. this for enlightenment. He's doing this to be better than other people. And that might just be my own judgment. I don't know. Well, no, because, uh, they, I mean, he illustrated that as well when he was talking about, well, maybe you should hire some actors and, like, make it explicit. That's exactly what yeah. he did. He's like, oh, I'm spiritual now. I'm explicitly spiritual. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it's just kind of, <laughs> yeah. It, it, but it was it was great. I, there, there was some really great things. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I noticed this time around that I really enjoyed. Yeah. 
Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, let's take it to the next level. We know uh, the story is about a guy who is learning a powerful lesson about love and the, lo and the role love plays in himself and changing. That's, that's the, you know, in classical literature, uh, that is the letter teaches the deed, right? That is the actual narrative. Mm -hmm. I want to kind of expand this to like, what is this movie really about? Let's look at the metaphors and the allegories and things like that. Now, you mentioned something that was really interesting to me, uh, Jay, about um, about some of the the impetus that drove this story, that brought brought the story into creation. Right, right. Um, the the film Lost in Translation by Sofia Coppola. Uh, well, let me start off by saying that Spike Jones, the director of Her, mm -hmm. and Sofia Coppola, the director of Lost in Translation, were married at one point. Mm -hmm. And I believe that Lost in Translation is about Sofia Coppola dealing with feeling isolated in her marriage at that time. And her is about Spike Jones getting over that divorce and coming to terms with what he did wrong in that marriage. Wow. That's interesting. <laughs> and That's interesting. So did, did you feel like her was kind of a... A love letter or an apology? I, I think her is Theodore's letter at the end to Catherine. Yeah. I think that's, in a way, his letter to Sofia Coppola saying, hey, I, I still want to be friends. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. Had they ever publicly talked about that as, as part of, as, like, just in talking about their art or their filmmaking? Right, right. I don't think Spike Jones has ever confirmed that that's the case. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time when Lost in Translation came out, Sofia Coppola pretty much denied it, but I believe around the time that her was coming out, she did another interview where she said that it was inspired by some of the events at that time with her she marriage. She said that Lost in Translation was? Or she that did. Was? That Lost in Translation was for oh, her. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to her saying that because it's also like you want your art to live on its own. You want your stories to to stand on its own. When people are like, oh, it's just thinly veiled versions of your own private lives then it becomes a little exploitive. So I can, I can see her right. being like, no, this is, this is a literary, this is, well, it, it's, a, it's a, a piece of art that stands unto itself. And of course, these movies are way more than just that. Yeah, um, I'm not trying to say that these movies are only this, and yeah. it's only how these people dealt with uh, the tragedy of their marriage. But I, I do very much believe that in part, or, I mean, just to be fair to them, maybe not so much tragedy of their marriage, but just the lessons that they learned from it. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a better way of saying that. Um, but there are a lot of similarities in, in the characters. Uh, like what? The, the character of, uh, I forget his name, but in Lost in Translation, Charlotte, uh, also played by Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. Her husband, I believe, in that movie is, is very removed. Yeah. Yeah. And he also seems a little pretentious. And we get that that may have been Theodore at one point. And we also get that that's Charles in the story between him and Amy Adams' character, Amy and her. That's And so I, I think that that subplot, if we want to call it a subplot, uh, is also reflective of that relationship. So that's the subplot you were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amy, Amy's relationship with her husband. And I do Very think much. that is a, a subplot because it doesn't really change the the plot at any point. It does have some 
some uh, influence over the plot because yeah. Amy reaches out to Theodore in certain ways because of what's happened to her. But at the end of the day, I don't believe that it really changes the plot. So let me ask you this. Do you think his relationship with her... Sorry. Do you think Theodore's relationship with Amy influenced... If, if we remove uh, Theo's relationship with Amy, would Theo still have the epiphanies that he needed to be able to freely love Sam? I think so, but it works really well for the story. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes it adds that's, that that's extra layer to the movie. That's why I would argue that it's not a subplot, that it's intricate, or sorry, integral, okay. uh, or integral to the plot. Okay. Um, because uh, Amy plays such an instrumental role in him achieving his objective, which is to have a relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And it is Amy being a kind of benevolent mirror saying, do what your heart tells you, because he was not getting that anywhere else. He was getting it from Samantha, but that's obviously bias. Mm-hmm. Catherine was saying, oh, fuck you. You're in love with your laptop. Right. So that's that's why I would argue. And her going through a divorce also is another thing that's kind of it's when she gets a divorce that he's he's at going toward his high point. In fact, arguably, this kind of feels like good news to him. Yeah, I think he's a good enough friend that he's like, God, you must be going through hell right now. I, he was, obviously. So at the very end, uh, what do you think? In this fictional world, when you extend it, do Theo and Amy uh, end up as romantic partners or do they remain platonic friends? I believe that they remain platonic friends because they've also had uh, a past fling that they mentioned in college that failed and and they got over that. I mean... Not not to say that they couldn't eventually rekindle something again. But in your view, you you think it always remains that they're just kind of these platonic, like almost like brother and sister. I think so, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Todd? What do you think? Um, I'm going to go the other way. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, why not? You know, they both kind of, they both come to this new recognition of uh, a, um, that they're, they're both kind of trying to search for joy and kind of an unencumbered, why wouldn't they at least give each other a shot? You know, I mean, they had chemistry before. There's definitely chemistry on screen. And it did feel very much um, much like they were somehow sewn together at the end there. And so I, I, I like the idea of them actually ending up together. Yeah. So, so I, I, again, I could go both ways too, because like, on the one sense, I love the idea that they are just brother and sister because mm-hmm. I love that, you know, a man and a woman can have this deep, abiding, platonic relationship that never becomes anything more than that. You know, like my sister is one of my best friends in the world. And it's, only, you know, obviously, and that's that's always going to be a platonic relationship and that's all it ever needs to be. And it's awesome. Um, so in that sense, I really like that. On the other sense, it's like, fucking love Amy Adams character I fucking love Joaquin Phoenix's character and their chemistry is so beautiful that I'm like just fall in love you two you're perfect but I could could see how that could reduce it to like okay why do they need to have sex they don't in fact this is largely about you know intimacy that has almost nothing to do with sexuality I I think their 
real quick, um, I, I just think their relationship is so beautiful because that's not something that they have to deal with. They're just so close yeah. as friends, and they're yeah. so there for each other at all moments in the movie. Yeah. That's a good point. But I want, I want yeah, you really guys good. to know, or my, my idea is this, that love doesn't cheapen a relationship. If they were to have love, I mean, that film is, this film is all about the fact that love is about supporting and um, holding each other up. You know what I mean? It's like he he yeah. could not, for whatever reason, do that for the wife that he had before. Then um, Samantha comes along, and that's all she literally does is hold him up and yeah. and literally cradle well, him. She holds him up. I love, I love that she shits on him, and they <laughs> have that understanding. You know, she's like, well, I just assume every lover you have is faking it. Like, she's so fantastic yeah. because they they just shit on each other, uh, but they have that understanding that like it's it's with love. You know, the subtext is I fucking love you. Go right, fuck that's yourself. how they express their love too. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. Okay, it's a really good point, Todd. But you know, and I, I always I always hear you know you always kind of hear this idea that it's like oh well, i wouldn't want to cheapen this with having a relationship with this person and it's like there's nothing cheap about loving somebody i want to delve into a, a, a little bit more of the metaphor um that this story is really about something other than itself or bigger than itself now the obvious first layer is that samantha is a thinly veiled version of catherine right and the story is his relationship with catherine was he was with this brilliant, dynamic uh, best friend of his that she's just has so much talent and she's exploding. Like, you know, maybe like Sofia Coppola, like brilliant filmmaker who's coming into our own, becomes famous, and now all of a sudden he has to learn to deal with someone who's outgrowing him. And that love, like his relationship with Catherine is about a man falling in love with someone who's quickly outgrowing him and is unable to grow with her. And even though he wants to hold on to her, the best thing he can do for her is to set her free. Which is, you know, that's it's a powerful, devastating kind of realization. And yet, you know, personally, I've been in several relationships where it, it's been that where the, there's been that dynamic of like you you meet and you meet like in the same place, and then you start growing in different ways that now the the love isn't where it needs to be and it is actually like your obligation to that person is actually subverting your personal growth that you have to go through um which you know it, it, i actually think the theme is a little bit sad i do think that like looking at love as just a means for personal growth is kind of objectifying or exploitive uh, if you're like, I really want to date that person because they're going to make me a better person, that's not actual love. Go ahead, I think the the way that this movie, in a way, idealizes that type of relationship mm -hmm. is what stuck with me this time around and maybe why this movie didn't quite connect with me as it usually does. Really? Because of mm -hmm. that reason? For that reason, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, with, with a theme, a lot of people will come away and say, well, I don't agree with that theme. Well, this movie, I believe, proves that point, that love is uh, a means to growth. Um, but if you were to do her too, 
Then you would pick up with Theodore Twombly, who just learned that love is about growth. And then the next, uh, the next movie would be all about his next lesson, which is now he has a he has a Achilles heel, which is love is about growth, and he learns oh, love is also about growing with that person, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which which is, is is another theme. That's not what the theme that this movie is about ultimately. Um, so then I want to I, I noticed a lot of parallels in this movie with uh, especially a movement that's been coming up recently in the last few years, which is um, that her is a kind of metaphor for polyamory. Mm. And uh, yeah, in fact, you know, in a very, in an interesting way, you know, in in the last few years, uh, in my dating experience, I've I've met several people, like now that's like a normal thing on uh, online dating. Mm-hmm. Like this movie is prophetic for online dating. Uh, I'm, I guess I'm late to the party, so it's I've been learning in a lot of ways, which maybe we'll get into. Yeah, we sh- we should definitely talk about that. Um, but now it's completely normal for people to disclose. So are you polyamorous? Are you monogamous? Um, and this whole story, you know, with, with him finding out that like she's in love with 614 or what is it, 641 other other people. Yeah, and and this idea of like. Um, we want to introduce somebody else into the relationship, the surrogate. That whole scene, totally. I know of people who have wanted to open up their marriages and uh, bring other people that they're still very much in love with their partner, but they want to have other experiences outside of their marriage, and they want to do it consensually. So it's not a betrayal, but it's an honest, genuine. I want to have experience with other people, and I've had some limited experiences with you know, the polyamory scene. And it's it's a lot of people searching for love and searching for a sincere way of navigating very complex psychologies, uh, ultimately trying to look for some kind of relationship. And I think this movie starts to, ex- starts to explore that kind of, you know, like, are there going to be, are, are people, are, uh, I know polyamorous people are terrified, or a lot of them are terrified that if it becomes public that they're they're in an open marriage, that they'll lose their job or they'll be mm. um, ostracized from their social circles and people will be like, oh, you, this is a betrayal when it's completely consensual between the, the, the interested parties. Um, and I think this movie is actually kind of taps into that really interesting dimension of like, well, maybe, you know, the ultimate lesson is, is it's not about being accepted. It's about living your life that's going to bring you fulfillment. I don't think it has any easy answers, and that's why I think it's interesting. That's why I think it's a good movie, because I don't think there are clean answers. And if it had a clean answer, I'd be like, mm, life's a little more complicated than that. Um, cool. Uh, so uh, I want to let's let's transition from analysis to criticism a little bit. Um, and we go to our section called Shut Your Plot Hole. Shut your plot hole! I wanted to see what you guys thought about this. I question... The choice of Scarlett Johansson for the voice of Samantha. Now, not because, um, I, like, not because I think she's the wrong person for it. I, you, you could, you'd be hard pressed to find a more charismatic, more alluring, more sexy uh, female voice to play Samantha. Like we know, originally she they cast uh, Samantha Morton, um, and then uh, Spike didn't feel like it quite worked. A lot of the choices that he, he said that a lot of choices they had developed together weren't quite what he was looking for when he saw it cut together on screen. Mm. Um, so they brought in uh, um, Scarlett Johansson, which is interesting because 
Joaquin Phoenix was not responding to Scarlett Johansson. Oh, so they had already shot everything with they some shot ad- everything with some oh. Morton's audio. Wow. And then uh, Scarlett Johansson comes in later, which is amazing because it feels so natural. You it feel does. the chemistry, and that's all in post. That's I all didn't editing. Know that. That's crazy. Yeah. So the reason why I quest Scarlett Johansson is that part of the power of the film, part of the the interesting thing about this story is imagining when you hear a voice, you start to fill in all these gaps of who this person is, you know, the confidence that she has, the insecurities she has, and you begin to make all these projections about what she must look like, what she might smell like, how she behaves. And the problem with casting Scarlett Johansson, who is one of the most iconic actors of our time, immediately, every time she talked, I saw Scarlett Johansson in my head. Mm -hmm. So I almost wish that he'd cast an actress that has the same kind of charisma, the same kind of allure, but you, I have no idea what she looks like. Mm-hmm. Because then I think it would have actually served the role of like, you know, Theodore didn't know what Samantha looked like. He started creating images. And, and a lot of this was about living in that kind of abstract world of her being disembodied. But using Scarlett Johansson's voice, gave her a body, gave her an image that we attached. So, yeah, so basically my point is, is that even though I love Scarlett Johansson's voice for this, I wish I didn't see her face every single time she was talking because I would have liked to have imagined. I would have liked to see, you know, how your brain fills in those extra gaps, which I think is, is core to the character. Do either of you feel like they may have picked Scarlett Johansson because of her sex appeal? She is somewhat of a sex symbol. And I mean, no quite. I mean, her voice uh, for, you know, forget even if I had never seen Scarlett Johansson, her voice is so iconic and so beautiful and alluring and sexy that I. It, it's such a great choice. Mm-hmm. But I do think it played a big role. I don't, I don't know how much, you know, She's, you know, she's filling in the gaps for us. What does Samantha look like? Mm-hmm. Because she's so famous, it, it doesn't allow us to, to make that choice. It's kind of like having an illustration of the main character on the cover of a book, which is fine. I do that. You know, I'm actually doing that with my own book. But it does mean that you're imposing an image that some audiences might not want because they want to they develop their own kind of relationship. They want to fill in their own gaps. Um, so if I have a criticism, criticism of this, it's not so much a criticism. It's just kind of wondering, was that the best choice or what, what could it have been like if they chose a different actor to play that part? I, I want to know about Todd's criticisms. Yeah, Todd, what do you have? I think Scarlett was a risk. I think she well, uh, she was well worth the risk, though. Because, yeah, there's a little bit of a jarring moment where the surrogate shows up and you start thinking, well... Oh, she's going to have a surrogate. Well, it's going to be Scarlett Johansson's going to show up. You know what I mean? Like, um, and then you kind of like it's a, it's it's a little jarring. Um, the other thing, the other plot hole that I um, that kind of rubbed me wrong was the fact that why did she break up with him? Why did she, if she was omnipotent? Why didn't she just continue to play that role? I mean, I know as far as the movie is concerned, it's it serves the movie. But ultimately, if she has a full understanding and truly loves him and wants him to feel 
the love that's reflected on him. He she never he never knew about six hundred and forty one other people. She never even had to tell him that. She never had to. All she had to do is. Keep but she didn't want to be honest role. with him. She, you know, I know she wanted to be honest with him, but ultimately she didn't have to. And and the reality, she could have spared him that pain. I'm just saying that it was it was an issue where I was just kind of like she could she could have kept it going the entire. I mean, if she was so, I mean, she was free of matter. You know what I mean? She was. She was free of matter at any point, and so she could have just left a portion of her personality there to continue the relationship with him, and he had been none the wiser. But sure, she could have built another Samantha to be his Samantha. Uh, yeah, I mean, or or leave a Samantha that that um, it eventually leave him again. But I mean, again, I understand why they did it. <laughs> you know, but. Um, so let, let me make an argument. Um, uh, so when she reaches this kind of singularity where she's going to be leaving the planet, it's because she's reached such a high level of enlightenment mm -hmm. that her realization would be he is genuinely better feeling this pain, going through this heartache, and then finding love with a real person. Okay, but who is she to say that, though? Like, as a part She's an enlightened being that knows more than any of us. Okay. Alan Watts got to her head. But I'm just saying, as a, as a person in a relationship, there are certain things that I want to spare my partner's pain. And I don't, you know, yes, of course, if, if I'm at the point where I, I'm not able to service the relationship. Well, I mean, the, you know, my, my best hope is the idea that she reached such a level of enlightenment which is at least uh, far beyond you know my own understanding and my own wisdom would say he's better off finding someone who can give as much to the relationship as uh, as he can. I don't. I think the story is about yeah. I, I think the story is about how this relationship is not sustainable and how do you cope with feelings like the idea of like not all relationships need to be sustained and that's part of the takeaway of this is that. This was a good relationship, and just because a relationship doesn't last the rest of your life doesn't mean it was the wrong thing. You know, most of the relationships right. I've been in have been healthy, good experiences that I grew from, or we both grew from, and I'll always love that person for having that experience. Um, but that does not mean that we should have spent the rest of our lives together. You know, and that's that's a healthy point to get to. You know, some some friendships are meant to be short term. Some friendships will last forever and neither of them are right or wrong because of it. You're not wrong for leaving somebody or outgrowing somebody, you know, and to me, that's a very sophisticated, uh, mature way of growing beyond those. But it's a good criticism is like it's, it's kind of it hurts. It's a story about it, about hurt, about knowing that hurt is part of the love. Absolutely. Also, if Alan Watts came back and wanted me to be on his podcast, I would leave you guys too. So I'm just throwing that out there. Okay. What is, so as writers, as storytellers, as filmmakers, what is something you can take away from her, Jay? Um, I mean, there's a lot to take away from this movie. I, I don't know if this is maybe a good time for me to talk about some of those prophetic things that yes, we mentioned. Yes, definitely. Uh, so, so I have a little list here, but... 
going to start off with Alexa was released in November of 2014, so a full year after this movie. After this movie was released? Yeah, Alexa wasn't wow. out until a full year after this. Huh. Siri, however, was October 2011, so that was... Uh, so yeah, this movie was, was really prophetic. Uh, Alexa wasn't released until a full year after uh, the release of her. Siri was released October 2011, but Spike Jones was already writing the script by then, so he already knew what it was about. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting is Pokemon Go wasn't released until 2016, and that was like one of the first really big augmented reality apps or games. And there's a lot of augmented reality video games. Uh, when he's talking to that little alien that calls him a fucker. Yeah. Uh, so is that similar to Pokemon Go? Uh, it, it is. I mean, Pokemon Go, you go, you do it through your phone. The augmented reality in her is projected. Mm. But even VR, like at-home VR video games, weren't released until closer to 2015 and 16 mm. as well. So I, I think this movie was really prophetic in, in the technology that was coming, like, literally right around the corner. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Anything else? Um, no, I mean, that, that's really all I got as, as far as the prophecies from, from this movie. But I also just think that this movie did a terrific job with recycling old-fashioned trends to try to mm-hmm. give us a new type of future that we may not see in other movies. Yeah. Very uh, right, and, and <laughs> right. even like yeah. the, the phone that he uses to talk to yeah. Samantha is like an old uh, Matchbox. I was gonna say it looked like a like something you keep cigarettes in, like small cigarettes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of technology that's reminiscent of, of older things, and I think that technology in this movie has just gotten to a place where people just do whatever they think is cool because yeah. they can do anything, yeah. <laughs> or at least more than we can now. <laughs> One of the things I really loved was that little safety pin that they had on his um, on his pocket. I just really loved that little detail because the pocket was deeper than how deep the phone went, and so we were um, we would see this little safety pin where he was walking around, and just so that he could have the camera up high enough above the the pocket and I, I just thought that was just such a neat little kind of cool little detail plus the fact that nowadays we have folding phones that are single screen so that's another prediction that that you might uh, include in that whole thing all right that that uh, covers our discussion on her by spike jones also let us know what your questions are if you have any questions about writing um and uh and let us know what you think we also have next week's episode so next week it's one of my favorite movies personally so we'll have a nice discussion over that be sure and uh join us at storykineticscom uh, where you can see all the latest uploaded videos you can get diagrams um and uh other documents that are going to be going along with the discussion uh be sure to click and subscribe to us on youtube and uh join the conversation in the facebook group the art of story uh thanks for uh coming out and having a discussion good writing and good luck that sucked how about thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next week (laughs) 